Now that's important words to remember as we go into our lesson this morning. Because this is going to be another portion of Acts 2 that may have damaged more people in this world spiritually than any other verse in the whole Bible. Happens to be Acts 2.38. We'll start reading at verse 36 in the second chapter of Acts. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and unto and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common, sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank thee again for this reading of thy word. We've read the same portion last week. We're reading it again, and no matter how many times we read it, it's precious it's different, it's revealing, it gives us knowledge of, of thee and of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank thee that there was an early church, it did have its beginnings, and thou wert faithful to them as thou art faithful to us. We ask you to bless this lesson this morning. We ask in the name of our Lord Jesus, amen. <clears throat> Just before we start with verse 38, we have a question. Men and brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do is asked by a group of people within a nation to whom a national message has been preached in regards to their ruler. It was Jewish. It was a Jewish question. There is nobody here saying, what must I do to be saved? Nobody has given anybody any instruction in a plan of salvation as far as repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not in this chapter. This was a representative group from the nation saying, what must we do? 
what shall we do? There is coming a day in the future when all of Israel shall repent in a day. You're going to say, how can that be? I don't know. But I see 3,000 of them that repented right here in a day and were saved. With God, nothing's impossible. We're given little examples from time to time of some big things that'll happen in future times. Just like the plagues in Egypt are a picture of the tribulation time to come upon the whole world. It's just a, a minor picture. The deliverances of Israel many times is just a picture of the deliverances of a sinner, which is the greatest battle that ever takes place in your life. You never run into a greater situation in your whole life than when the Lord is dealing with your heart for you to let go and come to him. Greatest battle in your whole life. Many people reach the front, but they retreat and they never get saved. All right, there's three questions in the book of Acts dealing with something similar to this, and they go like this. From Israel, it says, what shall we do? We just read that. An awakened sinner says, what will thou have me to do? Who said that? Turn over to Acts 9, 6 just a moment. We're going to see the Apostle Paul just got kicked off his horse, was blinded, Lord speaking to him. Let's look at verse 4. He fell to the earth, heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? What reason have you got to persecute me, Saul? Have you given any thought? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? It's an honest inquiry. Now, when we speak of repentance, it's turning away from our sinful lives. Now, I want you to know that Paul did not have a sinful life. Paul, in his persecuting of Christians, was doing it out of a religious duty and ignorance. He was keeping the law. All those things that God had said in the Ten Commandments and any other laws of ceremonial, Paul was keeping them to the very best of his ability. And he was also offering the yearly sacrifice when they would have the feast of the Passover and so forth. Paul was not having to dig himself out of some pit in the world where he was stuck in some mud hole of outward sin. Ah, he just didn't know his heart, though, you see. It had a wonderful religious cover on it. It had actually buried some of these things from him. But he said, when sin revived, I died. He soon come to find his heart. But right here he says, What wilt thou have me to do? I'm confounded. I'm persecuting you, and now I stand in awe of thee. I don't know what to do. Well, the Lord gives him a few instructions, and he's blinded. And he begins to pray, because it's mentioned here that he prays. It was the duty of these people to pray hours every day as a Pharisee. It was just part of their daily routine. 
these prayers aren't mentioned. It says, Behold, he prayeth. Ah, prayer of an awakened sinner is something different. It comes from the heart, not from the head, not from a book. And then there's a third question given in Acts that an unsaved Gentile, or if this reaches down to you and me, what must I do to be saved? We find that in Acts 16.30. Turn over there a moment. Acts 16.30. This was that jailer who had uh, been so harsh on Paul and Silas. And uh, at midnight, something happens drastically in this uh, prison. And he says in verse 30, and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? See, in this particular church age, what we call the age of grace, and it's because it's such a, a free grace, it's such a time of, of, uh, of God's mercy to mankind, what must I do to be saved? Now, see, he was ignorant, but he was honest. And God makes a person honest. They don't have a prayer. They don't have words like this on their tongue or in their mouth unless God puts them there. From a time when he uh, he would misuse these people and then immediately go to what must I do to be saved from a physical to a spiritual condition, something only the Holy Spirit does for a person. There's always an awakening in every single heart. Every single heart that ever gets saved has a day of awakening. It can be a gentle awakening or it can be a very, very sudden and abrupt awakening. But the mind and the heart is troubled with the fact is that you're not saved, regardless of your religious upbringing. Now, this is peculiar because all religions want everybody to be hush-hush and be quiet. If you are baptized in a church or if you're confirmed, I was confirmed and then I was baptized. And I can remember, it seemed like a wonderful, wonderful moment. Uh, when my mother took me to this church to be baptized, it was in the middle of some day. It wasn't in a, during a service or anything. And we met the minister in his big black robe, you know, and that collar that has... And... Uh, I can't remember much of anything except they talked in the church and right near the front door in, in the and there was a, a long flight of steps that went down to the main street and in there there was some water and this this man took and sprinkled my head three times as a youngster and I thought to myself how wonderful just for this moment to be clean how wonderful just for this moment to be to be clean and, and to be I said I know if we could do this every week it would be great but you only do it once and what's going to happen next week when I have been a sinful child or a sinful boy knowing my own heart but there was just that feeling that this was a wonderful thing to be baptized maybe if I could die right now I'd go to heaven well you know that most of us Almost everybody feels that same way about their baptism, that it cleans them, 
that it has something to do with them being pure and having their sins forgiven. And I want to go on record this morning to tell you that it has nothing at all to do with you being forgiven. Not one thing in the world. It don't clean you. It don't do anything but possibly get your hair wet or get your whole body wet if you get baptized the right way. But people are brainwashed into thinking that this is it. It's a ceremony. It's a church ceremony. And therefore, it's sacred. Well, we've all come the same road, haven't we? But you know, there comes a day of awakening when the Lord touches a heart and says, Hey, you ever been lost? You know what lost means? Do you know what lost means? It means utterly confounded in darkness and blackness, stumbling, stuttering, mumbling, twisting, turning, and can't find any way out. That's what it is. And you're lucky to have a voice to cry, because this is what God has given sinners as a ladder to him is a cry. Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. What must I do to be saved? Okay, that's enough for the questions. Verse 38, let's read that. Then Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Isn't that a wonderful little set up there if you could do that in that perfect order do you think you'd be saved is this the way salvation is well, why do so many people say it is I'm telling you as you read this verse there's no other way to change it it means exactly what it says right here there's no other way to change it it says Peter said repent he says and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission does it say anything about the forgiveness of sins does it say anything at all here about redemption no it says something about the remission of sins and ye shall now if you do these things what shall happen ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost do you know any better than that has your experience taught you any better than that? Are you just part of these charismatics today that make a little old golden rule out of this thing here, follow it step by step, and that's it? Well, let's examine it a little bit. Verse 38 has been used for 18 centuries to justify water baptism as a means of regeneration. Water baptism as a vehicle of grace. Water baptism as essential to salvation. And water baptism as essential to forgiveness of sins. There's more people have been damned to hell in Acts 2.38 than any other scripture in the Bible except maybe Matthew 7.1. Now you're curious, huh? You want to look at Matthew 7.1? Didn't know that was so damning, did you? Judge not that you be not judged. Do you ever hear anybody tell you that? Can you criticize anybody's life or anything they do? All their outward actions. Oh, but judge not. No, in the same book it says, By the fruits you shall know them. 
And then look at 7.12 in the same chapter. Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would do that men should do to you, do ye even to them, for this is the law and the prophets. What does that gain you? To do good deeds, to do stuff? You're not going to treat everybody the way you'd have them to treat you, because they don't treat you like that to start. So you take the cart and put it before the horse, and the way they treat you is the way you treat them. They don't like me, so I don't like them. They did this to me, I'm going to do that to them. They hit me first, and I'm going to punch them back. That's not what this says, but this is the way the rule is read. All right, let's back to Acts 2.38. Anybody, anybody can repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and still bust hell wide open. There isn't any evidence from Acts 8 on to the end of the book of Acts that repentance and baptism will earn you anything but hell. Acts 2.38 is giving instructions to Old Testament Jews under the law on what to do in view of the fact that they had killed their divinely chosen ruler. These were folks who kept the law to the best of their ability. They kept that ceremonial law about walking on the Lord on the Sabbath day, about cooking their food, about eating things. Here's people that didn't eat pork or catfish, and all the men were circumcised. They were keeping God's law. When they says, what shall we do? What else is there to do? It's to acknowledge that the Lord Jesus Christ was the Savior and Lord. Now, a devil can repent and be baptized. He can believe and confess and still wind up in the bottomless pit. You want to see one? I'll show them to you. First of all, turn to Matthew 10, 1. Matthew 10, 1 reads like this, And when he had called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. And then he lists all those twelve, and it included Judas. Now turn to John 6, verse 70. In John 6, verse 70 and 71, it says this, Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve? And one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. Turn to Matthew 27 and verse 3. Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. And here's his confession saying, I have sinned, and that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See thou to that. All right, he confessed, he repented, he believed, he was baptized, and he went to hell. Went to the bottomless pit. Simon the sorcerer believed and was baptized and did not get the gift of the Holy Spirit. So then we have the birth of a new devilish doctrine now because of this, that you can lose salvation 
and then get, then get born again and again and again and again. But notice this. You only have to be baptized once in this particular, just the first time. That's strange, isn't it? Oh, you can lose it and come back. But you don't have to be baptized again. Now, Cornelius and his household got the gift of the Holy Ghost before any of them were baptized. Something's happened. Something's changed. Something's progressed. Turn to Acts 11 and verse 15. And as I begin to speak, the Holy Ghost fell on them as on us at the beginning. Then remembered I the word of the Lord, how that he said, John indeed baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. He was still speaking and they began to fall on him. They weren't baptized. Pharaoh and Judas confessed and both lost their souls. Remember how many times Pharaoh would say to uh, Moses, Oh, 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 you you got to forgive me, you know. Uh, I did wrong. Uh, I won't do it again. I'll let your people go. I'll do this and I'll do that. Ninth chapter of Romans says, God raised him up for that very purpose, just to show his power in him. He was a vessel of wrath. Now, not one apostle in Acts 2 ever received the Holy Ghost by being baptized according to Acts 2.38. That if you get baptized, repent in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, thou shalt receive the Holy Ghost. Not a one of the apostles ever received the Holy Ghost that way. How did it happen? It happened all at once. Came down, I'm in the first chapter of Acts 2. They weren't baptized. I want you to know that the Holy Ghost is sovereign. He works on peoples, he works on groups, he works on individuals according to his will and purpose. No one set pattern, any way, shape, or form. No two individuals alike. I can't say you have to be saved the way you saved me. I can't say you have to be saved the way you saved Brother Hale. I tried to be saved the way Brother Hale was. It didn't work with me. And Brother Hale couldn't be saved the way I was saved. Because I don't think you were as wicked as I was, Brother Hale. You didn't have a self-righteous heart in you like I had that had to be broken and beaten and shown how sinful and wicked it is. It is, I said, not was. All twelve were baptized according to Luke 3, the apostles. They were baptized way back in the early part of the ministry because all of them knew the baptism of John. John went out to baptize and it says the whole world went out after him. But they were baptized early and they knew the baptism of John. And John says, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. Now, always that word remission. Do you know what a disease is when it's in remission? It's held in check. Remission means held in check. 
Anywhere you see for the remission of sins is to hold them in check. It's a temporary forgiveness. And this is one thing that is hard for people to spot in the scriptures. Because even great theologians and the ones in our colleges today think that remission and redemption are the same thing. And they are not. All twelve were baptized according to Luke 3, and all of them received the gift of the Holy Ghost in Acts 2, 1 through 5. There's at least three years between their baptism and the receiving of the Holy Spirit, and it was not according to Acts 2, 38. Now, when we take the verse as it is stated, and it teaches that the gift of the Holy Ghost is not available to a man unless he has been baptized in water, now, if you turn to Acts 8 and verse 15, verse 15 and 16, who, when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost, for as yet he was fallen upon none of them. Only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They had been baptized and had never received the Holy Ghost. And then turn to Acts 10 and verse 44. While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word, and they of the circumcision which believed were astonished. And as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. Were they baptized and then received the Holy Ghost? Uh-uh. Holy Ghost came upon them. Then they were baptized. Well, what about Acts 2.38? I thought it said, if you were baptized, then you'd receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Well, we're going to get to that. Because this shows, the scriptures we just read, Acts 8 and Acts 10, show conclusively that Acts 2.38 was a temporary setup with the truth as it was revealed up until that moment. There's a progression of truth in the book of Acts. They have to learn, and the Lord is teaching them. And they use all of their knowledge and all of their spiritual abilities each and every time. But here Peter now is astounded. While he's speaking, the Holy Ghost has fallen upon people. Now would he have said that you must repent in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and be baptized and then the Holy Ghost will come upon you. He wouldn't say that now. But you see, that was a Jewish message also. People don't like the fact that there was not one Gentile present in this whole conversation, in this whole preaching message with the whole 3,000. There wasn't one Gentile among them. They were all Jewish Now we come to another little phrase in Acts 2.38, which is kind of interesting. It's called for the remission of sins. Sins were remitted from Genesis to John 1.29, and they were forgiven on the basis of the blood of bulls and goats. You all understand that? Turn to Hebrews 10.4 just a moment. In 
Hebrews 10.4 says this, For it is not possible, it is not possible, that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Why did they do it? Well, it was a picture. They were commanded to do it. There's some things you're commanded to do whether you like to do it or not, but God commands it. But it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Remission is not redemption. Now, if you turn to Mark 1.4, we want to find the mention of remission of sins given there for the first time. John did baptize in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. If that's all that was necessary and remission of sins was satisfaction complete in the eyes of God, then why did he have to announce the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world? Remission of sins is a preparation for people to get saved. It's a temporary thing. Did John's baptism save anybody? It was a preparation, supposedly, for a prepared people. John did baptize in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. It doesn't make any difference what ritual anybody goes through or who commands it, even if it's from the Lord God of heaven himself, and gave John as a divine, not a divine, but as a divinely appointed forerunner, Every sinner has got to go to the Lord Jesus Christ for the, remit, for the forgiveness and redemption of sins. There's only one Redeemer. Amen. His blood only was the price to buy sinners back from the slave market of sin. Remission of sins is not redemption. Now we have another scripture where we see the redemption, remission of sins mentioned. Turn to Matthew 26, 28. And this, our Lord himself is speaking this, and this is quite often misinterpreted. For this is my blood for the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. The word for here is used as more or less as because of the remission of sins. All the sins of the Old Testament saints still had to be paid for. Their sins were in remission. Their sins were forgiven on the basis of the blood of bulls and goats. But they could not save a sinner. They would not satisfy God's justice and God's rules. Four thousand years God had been forgiving sins and iniquities that could by no means clear the guilty. And these sins that were past had to be cleared and redeemed. You want to see it? Turn to Hebrews 9.15. It's as clear as language can make it. <clears throat> Hebrews 9.15. Everybody in the Old Testament, including David, including Moses, Samuel, Daniel, 
Joseph, Abel, Adam, I don't care who it is, still had to have their sins redeemed and paid for. Hebrews 9.15, And for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption, this is redeeming now, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. He had to pay for those transgressions under the Old Testament. That's why they didn't go directly to heaven. A few did, as pre-pictures of something. Rapture, saints, church, so forth. But even David is in a grave till his day. His body, his soul, finally, after the resurrection, was taken to heaven when captivity was led captive. We've been into that already. God had a basis for forgiving sins, the perfect spotless blood of Christ, not the blood of bulls and goats. So here comes the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Turn to John 1.29. This makes this scripture stand out so boldly. This is a beautiful scripture. This was a wonderful announcement. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. All those goats and all those lambs and all those bulls sacrificed, pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what the world was waiting for. For this one to come who was to be their substitute, who was to be the one to take their place. Now, I don't know how fully they understood this. I'm talking about they, I mean the Old Testament saints and those in the early New Testament church. I don't know how clearly they understood this. But you know, there's no reason why you and I can't understand it. There's no reason at all. With this book with all the freedom and instruction and the intelligence and the education that we have to be able to even listen to tapes and to sermons and, and read the Puritans, to know that this isn't something that somebody just stumbled upon in the last couple of years or they're just trying to give you some good advice. This is what God demands, what God wants you to hear, and the only thing good in your whole life that there is for your benefit it's what God has given you in this book. How to be saved. Why to be saved. What to be saved from. About life here and about eternal life. About one who was God himself and came here in the flesh to suffer and die and then to be resurrected and have people see him. Have 500 people at one time saw the Lord Jesus Christ. The apostles saw him. Others saw him. And they wrote about him. We have... We have the written record of those that saw him, talked with him, ate with him. And he has given and it he has given us promises and words. And it's all you got. 
if you don't want it, if you don't believe it, you haven't got anything. You're staking your eternity and your destiny upon what I'm telling you about God's Word and what God's Word says. You've got to take a chance if you're if you're even in the gambling form. If you feel like the odds are pretty good against this book being wrong, then you're not going to go with it. But I would say that the odds are pretty good in favor of this book. Seeing this thing is thousands of years old. And when you're reading it, it just still thrills your heart. There's no other book in this world that you read that's even several hundred years old. And you've got a book here that when you read about any of these things in here, that it does something inside of your mind and inside of your heart that either thrills you or convicts you. One, this is a powerful living word. It's like a sharp two-edged sword. Exactly the description of this word. Now, verse 39, and we should be finished. The promises to those afar off. Now, most commentators say, ah, here come the Gentiles. The Gentiles are coming in now as the promises afar off, and they're the ones that are afar off. Let's read that again. For the promises unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call, Back to verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel, and then he's speaking to Israel, and he's saying, For the promises unto you and to your children, and to all that are far off, even as many as our Lord our God shall call. This is still Jewish and does not apply to Gentiles who receive the promise of the Spirit by faith. You don't have to be baptized to receive the Spirit. Turn to Galatians 3.14 just a moment, and let's get it cleared up. Galatians 3.14 That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Through faith. Nothing about having to be baptized to receive the Holy Ghost. If they were afar off, why would they have to be baptized if they received the promise by faith? Those afar off and their children are the Jews of the dispersion who are represented at Pentecost by the list that we see in Acts 2, 9 through 11. And that's going to be the end of our lesson. We're running out of time this morning. Uh, I'm glad you've listened. I've enjoyed this study. It's, sometimes it's harsh, but there are so many truths that have been stumbled over and miscalculated through the years in here. I'm going to clear that thing up once and for all that you don't have to be baptized in order to receive the Holy Ghost. I hope you've got that straight this morning. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you this morning for thy strength, thy goodness and mercy to us, keeping us alive to this hour. I pray that thou would have blessed this service and thou would bless the service to follow. We ask in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.